Okay. All right, let's get started. Um, since Marilyn just already brought it up, she said, oh, I tried to look up Susanna. Some of you, I can't remember if Judith is mentioned in this. Okay. So, um, well, in, in next week's reading, you especially will find examples from the Bible and the Apocrypha. But um, Judith especially. Now, if you go into the women's retreat, Lucas Cronick, he's a, a pa- painter. He was uh, either he was godfather of Luther's children or Luther was godfather. I don't know. Maybe back and forth. But um, anyways, he, um, he has a series of paintings of Judith. Who, it's, it's from the Apocrypha. It's, it's a book of the Apocrypha. Uh, where so does anyone know the story of Judith by chance? Just off top head, we when we did the apocrypha a few years ago, uh, we did not actually read that. So, Holly, uh, a little. Wasn't she like? Wasn't she um, murdered somebody in her tent because they? That's right. Married. Yeah, Judith is a uh, powerful lady. You don't want to mess with Judith. Let's put it that way. Okay. So uh, the story goes, well, there's a, um, a Syrian, I don't actually know how to say his name. It's like Hofernears or Hoffernears or something like that. He, he comes down to Israel battles and, you know, people are captured. And Judith is a very beautiful woman. And... But Judas will not be compromised. So she uses her, uh, she, she seduces him. You know, it's, it's uh, so he, they go in the tent, his tent, and she asks everyone to leave, and she already got him drunk, this guy. And, um, Chops, her head, chops his head off with his sword. Chops it off. Puts it in a sack. Hit, uh, oh, the only person in the tent that was allowed was her handmaiden. So they kind of they leave. Because everyone thinks, oh, he, you know, he just had his way with her, and he's drunk, and he's resting. So no one suspects anything yet. And it's not until <laughs> she gets back to the Israelites that she shows what she's done and basically they they don't have a leader and so they 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 uh, they all get to escape and go back to Israel so uh in the next well you'll know in the next reading you'll know why Judith is a very appropriate image for Argula because the next reading it's actually two poems, and I ended up just giving you the whole kit and caboodle. I didn't have time to summarize kind of the, the written parts. And plus, you, you know, you guys might find that interesting. So. Um, so it's like 30 pages, but it's only like maybe 15 pages of actual poems. The first poem was by a, an anonymous man who just says some awful things about Argola. And she responds in kind, meaning a poem. She writes a poem, longer poem. 
And she actually will use biblical references, but she, that's when she incorporates Judith into her poems. And um, after you read, it's Johannes of uh, Landshut, which, again, is just a made-up name. But uh, she, uh, he's, he says some awful things about her. Uh, and she responds with a, a, a poem, but like a better poem. So like she beats him at a, his own game. And it's really, I think it's great. So that's why I thought I'd have you guys read it. So anyways, so Susanna, Judah, Deborah, and uh, Jael, or Jael, or I don't know how you, I say Jael which I think might be a Superman reference, too. <laughs> oh, is it Jor-El? Okay. I haven't had time, I didn't time to look up uh, Superman's parents' names, but I believe Jael is one of them. So, <laughs> anyways, the, uh, uh, so, yeah, so she, she has a lot of biblical precedent. The one that she kind of mainly uses in the reading that you guys did for this last week is Mary Magdalene, as uh, she tries to argue for, well, argues is a, maybe overstating it, but she tries to show how she can have a response back from the theologians of the Ingolstadt faculty because Jesus, you know, conversed openly and discussed things with Mary Magdalene, and then also Jerome, the translator of the, the Bible, also to discuss things with, uh, I forgot the woman's name, but um, anyways, so she likes to use biblical images of very st- strong women, which I love. Which, again, of course, is the antidote to Lizzo, which I'm sure everyone listens to often in, on the radio right now. Yeah. Uh, what is it with truth hurts, right? Why a man always... I can't remember how it goes. I can't, first of all, I can't understand it, but... I see a few smiles. So somebody does listen to the, you know, 101.9, Mix FM, 96.3. Oh, okay. Well, fantastic. That's right. Head back. Check my nails. Baby, how you doing? Okay. But anyways, Lizzo. So this is very apropos. So, yeah, Lizzo, uh, Lizzo is a popular hip-hop artist. She's a woman. And I think she tries to exude confidence, maybe, right? Strength or something, yeah. But not like Argula. That's how I put it that way. So, But Argula can write a good rap. It's just in German. So you guys, unfortunately, have not been able to read her, you know, she's a lyrical assassin. Okay. It's a rap reference. Okay, let's take a look at the letter to the Ingolstadt faculty. This, uh, Marilyn, uh, too, also said, this is a lot easier to read than uh, Katharina Regina von Greifenberg. Okay, so if, if uh, Katharina Regina von Greifenberg is at the end of the Reformation period, Argula is at the beginning. So you're getting bookends now. And by the way, so we're going to, in a couple weeks, we'll look at some letters uh, from nuns. So we're going we're gonna to read some, some letters from nuns about those who are refer- like accepted the Reformation, but some who would like to stay in, in the convent, and then others who advocate leaving it. 
And then we're going to look also, too, at um, uh, hymn writers, women hymn writers. So the, um, so we have all different kinds of things that we're going to be reading. So that's all I'm saying. But my whole point, though, is to really show the breadth of which uh, women participated in the life of the church. Uh, and so that hopefully can be applied to what we do today, too. All right. So the letter to the Ingolstadt University was written on September 20th, 1523, and it actually went through 14 editions. So as you can probably tell, I, I would probably, I mean, I, it's probably easy to say that she had written it originally just as a private, kind of a sort of quasi-private communication, um, but eventually was copied, first handwritten copies, and then disseminated, and then eventually it was in print versions. So 14 editions, that's a lot. Um, yeah. So, the, so it, was, it was kind of widely known, especially in Bavaria, but obviously through a lot of the rest of the Holy Roman Empire, but mainly in Germany because she wrote in German. The, this woman, she was well-known. So now there's, there's uh, you know, key points of the letter. I mean, these are just my points. And, but... Um, as I mentioned last week, Matthew chapter 10 is quoted often in the letter. Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33, those who confess Christ, Christ will confess you. Those who deny Christ, Christ will deny you. Um, so every Christian is meant to confess Christ, and authority comes from Christ based on the Holy Spirit, given in holy baptism, which we'll come back to in a little bit, because this is something that she does in a very unique way, and... Um, in a, in a very intentional way, too. So then she makes the whole point stopping someone from confession is sinful. So, you know, she's kind of basically pointing out that this young man is confessing Christ and you're telling him to stop doing that. You, you know, you better watch out because you're working against God and his servants. And then she really kind of lays out the motivations, right? No uncertain terms. They're mercenary, they're arbitrary, and they got no proof. So, or at least they don't show any proof. So, uh, and then also too, you know, she's, another point is that she, she knows her Bible. She understands what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So, but that doesn't necessarily exclude her from, so the, the text from 1 Corinthians, well, Paul basically is, so 1 Corinthians, everything is a mess in 1 Corinthians. I don't know if you guys remember this. Uh, well, maybe we should, let's turn to 1 Corinthians and take a look at the mess real quick. We don't want to spend too much time on this, but um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we're just, I'm just going to highlight some of the, uh, the nonsense that's going on there. Uh, we'll start at verse 10, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Um, we'll find out. I, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, now, the word brothers is, is like brethren, so it's, it's actually an inclusive Greek word, but 
What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And he goes, okay. So this is just an example of how chaotic things are in the church of Corinth. It's a big mess. And Paul is really trying to get things back in order. What are some of the messes? Um, you, you name, well, obviously, you name it from these allegiances and divisions to um, you have a, a son-in-law who marries his mother-in-law, and they, everyone thinks it's great. And um, then you have the, the, uh, the problems with the Lord's Supper, where people are basically eating all all of it before others can come up. And then other people are, have been going to the Greek temples, sacrificing to their gods, and then coming to church. I mean, it's just chaotic. And then along with this chaos is like everyone is basically trying to talk in church. So, so Paul says women should be silent. Now, it's not just women. It's basically Paul's advocating for there should be a giver and then a receiver. And if everyone's giving, then no one's receiving. So he's trying to put things back into order. And this is, uh, so this is where uh, arugula is basically, I know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So I waited, because there are those who, you know, when she says, I wait, you have to think of like, a, you know, I think we might have talked about, so she's, she's a mother of four, She's given to taking care of the household and pay the debts. and So her entering into this discussion with the whole sea offer affair is really above and beyond. She doesn't have time for it, basically. she got other things she has to do. But the thing is, though, she can't, she can't let this innocent guy uh, be, you know, not have a defense. So she basically says... Those who are meant to stand up, who got time for this, didn't, so I have to. So it's really, a, I think it's very funny because what could be understood as her trying, to, and of course it is understood, as her kind of usurping or trying to like break through glass walls. She basically, this is like, this is like hey, am I the only one seeing this thing going on? So... She is um, waiting for those who basically are given the job of speaking up on the behalf of God's word and Christ's church. But if they're not, she will because she has the authority given to her through God's word. And that's when she questions whether those theologians even understand God's word carries the authority and not their position. And that's really the one question throughout the letter. Authority. What carries the authority? God's word or the magisterium? The magisterium is the pope, the bishops, these, these kind of positions. And um, underlying that question is, how does one wrestle with authority? How does one wrestle with the truth? And then how does one wrestle with questions? And... I can't remember if I mentioned this last week, but you know, her letter is never responded. 
It has no response whatsoever. Even though it went through 14 editions and it grew in popularity, it was never, never officially countered or brought up. And there was no public disputation on this question. So, you know, was the theologians with the magisterium, were they afraid to argue? Were they just lazy or they mis not mis misogynistic? And if you, next week's reading, you'll, you, you might have a clear, clear answer to that question. So this is really important for us is because Argula comes into this situation believing that God actually wants people to question God actually wants people to study his word. And when you study God's word, you must wrestle with it or question it in order to receive it. Now, when I say question it, meaning ask questions about it, and then even question its, its truth. This is Jacob. This is the image of Genesis chapter 32. Jacob and the angel of the Lord wrestling. Um, and you know, many, many years ago, we went through idol, what idols mean, and, and let's not forget that idols deny questions. Idols never allow questions. But God begs questions. He wants to hear from his children. So this is, this is extremely important, is that Argula is really working under the presumption that the theologians of the Ingolstadt faculty are Christians and theologians, teachers of the Bible, and so they should be used to this. Okay. So I think, the, I think those are the kind of four key points of the letter. Anybody else have anything just about kind of what she says? We're going to get into her understanding of scriptures and then her um, discussion of baptism. So, Jan. I thought her statement that nowhere in the Bible do that I find that Christ or his apostles or his prophets yes. put people in prison, right. burned them, murdered them, or sent them into exile. Yeah, what page is that on, just so we can... Uh, 76. Yeah, okay. Right, right in the middle, right? Yeah. To the point of, this is what you've done. Yeah. And this is what you've been doing yep. over the years as part of the case. Yeah, now it, it's just really interesting because she is um, putting into words what everyone kind of already knows. Yeah. Yes, uh, the beginning of that paragraph there is Yes, when I reflect on this, my heart and all my limbs tremble. Yeah. So this is, this is uh, something to keep in the back of your mind is that, you know, is Argula doing this to destroy these people? Or is she trying to re have them return to the faith? Yeah, and this is where I think, yeah, this is really important for us because, you know, when, you know, we have a tendency when we know we're right, that's what we really, we just want people to know we're right. We just want compliance. We don't want them, we don't want people to repent <laughs> and, and then um, join in the truth. You know, I mean, this is a little bit of our sinful temptations when we know we're right. 
I don't. I actually don't think Argula is is that way. I think she's very faithful to the to Christ, and that she has the truth. She knows the truth, but it's not about her being right. It's about them joining the truth. So she she remains subservient to God's word. It's really important because some people will use God's word as a weapon to to uphold their position and their quote-unquote rightness. Uh, but I, I don't think she does. And, I, and, and there's these examples, like Jane just mentioned, that I think kind of points that out. She, she's, she's trembling over this. And, and uh, so, anything else? Yeah. I thought her posture like, on the long run seemed very much like a, um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm you out for it. It wasn't as much like, hey, you're not... Right. One of us now. You're not a Christian. It's more of like I'm telling you this. Almost like she assumes they will care. Right. Oh, absolutely. To it. It's not like a hey. It clearly, you're so past the mark. Right. Even come back. It's almost like she's giving all these verses. Like, hey, you realize this? I'm telling you things you know. I'm holding you accountable. Yeah. Right. Like they will return to it. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. So I, th- I think I think she's working under the presumption that. She, and so this this might be a little bit of the weakness of the letter, if you if you think that she's writing this letter in a more public setting, like hey for everybody. But if you if you think that this is sort of a given, like, hey you you know this already, then it makes sense the, the kind of the why she wrote, the way, it makes sense the way she wrote, the way she did. All right, but yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, again, that, again, this is—I think this is so good because she um, she she has this firm belief and faith in God's word and her 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 baptism. That really is such a great example for every Christian. All right, anything else, that we, or else, then we're, we're going to kind of move on to scripture. Yeah, Barb. I just think it's good that she. Doesn't coattail on Luther. Oh yeah. It comes from the Bible. Yeah. Standard the Bible. He does, yeah. Doesn't say well because Luther, you know. Right. She just doesn't. She, you know, it's like there's another Luther. There's another person. Yeah. It's the Bible, and that's all she uses to for her arguments. Yeah. If you flip over this one handout that has the picture on it, um, I think she's very tactful in four points. And the third one I put is she plays down Luther's influence. Now, there is a nice quote that I, I use. This is from a different letter. This is a letter to her uncle, who is a very influential, noble person. But she actually confronts this issue. I am called a follower of Luther, but I'm not. I was baptized in the name of Christ. It is him I confess and not Luther. But I confess that Martin, too, as a faithful Christian, confesses him. That's a great line. Goes to just what Barb said. And he would probably agree. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he kept saying, don't follow me. Yeah. <laughs> so, now, of course, why would the opponents who aren't interested in God's word have her attached to Luther? Why would this... Just if you know any little Reformation history, what what is Luther... Well, it... It had technically had not happened in the letter you read, but it, it was about to happen. Luther was deemed what? 
a heretic. So for the average person, if, if you know, the, the, local, the local bishop says this guy's a heretic, they're like, okay. And then you have a woman, Urgula, who's saying something sounding like this heretic. She must, of course, be a heretic too. So again, there is no, there's no like actual argument. It's just ad hominem. It's very similar to, to what happens today in, on CNN and a variety of other news outlets. So I think it's kind of funny to read this. Things have not changed. Okay. Um, all right, so her understanding of Scripture, and, and this is really, so there's a unity of Scripture that all are meant to understand. So the scriptures doesn't belong to a set of people. It belongs to the entire church. So um, both clergy and lay people are meant to understand. So um, based on that, too, she, that's why she'll debate in person, because she's not afraid. Of, I mean, this is just how normal Christians should act. Debating questions, listening, receiving. Um, yeah, I mean, all are meant to understand it. And of course, then this, she, she mentions she doesn't confess Luther, but the rock, Christ. And so Christ, the, the, the scriptures bring Christ. Okay, scripture is authoritative for life. So even the theologians must be accountable. Everyone is under scripture. And that's, that's, really, that's really clear, right? I mean, she has a passage for everything in life. <laughs> so, but um, she's really making sure that, you know, she's not quite necessarily questioning the theologian's position. It's just how they're executing it. Have they put themselves above God's word? And, well, I think she says they did, and that's, that's a dangerous place. Because, of course, when you put yourself above God's word, you put, your pla- you put yourself in the place of Christ himself. Christ is above, God, above the Bible because the Bible confesses Christ. But once you put yourself above the Bible, you put yourself in the place of Christ, which, of course, is idle. All right. So, um, now, this is a great thing. She's been blessed with reading and understanding the Scripture and is determined to exercise her stewardship of it. It would be unfaithful for her to not do what she's doing because of her place in life. She's, she, remember, she received the Bible when she was 10 years old. She was taught to read it, and she read it often. However, did, did you read I can't remember what She said she didn't do it very well when she was young. When she first got it, why? Do you remember why? Here, I, let's see if I can... Find her real quick. Not sure. Just because she was young and foolish, so it was there. Well, yes and no. Well, I would hate to speak out of turn, but I'm going to. It's because of the, uh, I think, the Franciscan observance means the the monks so you know remember she's from a noble family so she was taught very well and of course some of her teaching would have been from either pastors or or monks or theologians 
So they taught her, you know, you don't really have to read that. I'll do it for you. So it wasn't until she became older and, you know, obviously more what we would describe as independent that she began to read it. However, over the last few years, probably since 1518, so it's been about five years since the uh, posting of the theses, 95 theses, uh, 1517, October 31st, 1517 is when the 95 Theses was posted. But the letter was written in 1523. So, um, so probably over the last five years, she, she ate up the Bible. Okay. Um, again, then I already mentioned, too, about the biblical examples of Jesus discussing these things with Mary Magdalene. So if Jesus did not withheld... Um, Understanding in Scripture from Mary Magdalene. Now, I think she uses Mary Magdalene on purpose. Because what's the impression of Mary Magdalene? She's what? Yeah, she was a prostitute. She was the worst of women. She you know, demon possessed. Some people, you know. She, uh, so, if Jesus, you know, discussed Scripture with her, arguably, I mean, she's not as bad, she's not as, bad as Mary Magdalene. Basically, what she's saying. So. They shouldn't have a problem with her reading scripture and discussing it. Now, the quality of her argument, so if you want to flip the page, this is where things I think are really interesting for me, is now the content isn't unique, meaning like God's word is a, you know, a sole authority that Luther's already, many people are arguing that. But how she does it is really interesting for not only for, for a theologian to do it, but especially for a layperson to do it. I mean, she really is able to incorporate the theology of baptism in her life that a way, in, in a way that actually gives her the authority to confront the theologians. And, and again, I think she's working under the presumption that, that Leah has already said, this is, this is just our Christian faith. I'm not doing anything that is different than I've already been given to do. And so we'll see this in a second. Okay, so she draws implications for women and lay people from Luther's understanding of baptism. Now, when I say Luther's understanding, um, let's, let's backtrack and see what that means. All right, so in, in the Middle Ages, baptism was understood primarily as a removal of original sin. And so then the role of confession was kind of a, what's called a second plank so confession would be then something added to baptism. Luther said, well, no, no, no. Confession is just simple, a return back to the baptism that you've already received. So um, it's not an add-on. Everything is within baptism. The entire Christian life is within baptism. So this is, this is what she, she works off of. Her use of scripture is unique to women, but not just to her. I mean, like I said, Luther and other advocates do this. So not only is she given the authority to confess. Now, when I say confess, remember, it's, it's in the terms of acknowledgement. Matthew 10, well, here, let's, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, just in case we forgot, I better read it. Um, I mean, did you notice how many times she, she referenced it at least five times, I think? Uh, there is, there is, n- not a letter. Now, there was a footnote on Joel chapter 2, verse 28, I believe. I don't know if you guys read that footnote, but it says that she references Joel 2 in every letter. Uh, 
probably, I actually, I didn't test that theory on the guy who wrote that, but, but Matthew 10 is. So every, okay, so Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father, who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father, who is in heaven. Um, the word acknowledge in the English Standard Version is also confess. The word confess, it could be translated either way. Okay, um, so not only is she given the authority to confess or to acknowledge Christ, uh, but she's already exercised it in her baptism when she's confessed the faith. So she's doing what she's already done. All right, so I have two quotes, lengthy quotes from two other letters that makes this more explicit. First one is, okay, so when she sends the letter to the theologians, she also sends another one to Duke Wilhelm because she references the nobility in this letter. You know, the nobility are so busy, they don't have time to deal with this. And if they actually knew what you were doing to young Seehofer, they would be against this. So she actually sends a letter to the Duke saying, hey, this is what I said. Because she's afraid that they're going to go to the Duke and say, arrest that lady. Yeah, it, yeah, that's exactly right. So she, but it's, it, it's, a, it's actually a separate letter. It's a little shorter, and it's not so much filled with all the biblical text because she knows she's not writing to a theologian. But she basically says, they're probably going to say this, but this is exactly what I said. And she actually had a copy of the letter. All right, so, um, so, that, so after that happens, the theologians do inform Duke Wilhelm, but they also inform the city council. So now she has to write a letter to the city council because she's like, hey, they're making me sound like I'm a crazy woman. All right, so this is, this is from the letter. Now we are all incorporated into God through baptism, as it says at the beginning of this chapter. She actually references just Ephesians chapter 4, a little bit, like two sentences. Oop. One body, not one void, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father who is above us all and through all things in us all. Therefore, call to mind the vow which you made to God at baptism. So she's reminding them that they have all made this vow to confess Jesus in baptism. And it becomes more explicit than when she writes to her uncle. And indeed, in this case, too, I'm not under constraint to obey anyone at all. For I vowed a baptism to believe in God, to confess him, and to renounce the devil and all his illusions. I can never hope to fulfill such a lofty vow until I am born anew through death. Now you well know that we all make the same vow. I believe, I renounce, etc. Which doctor has made a greater vow in baptism than I have? Which pope or emperor or prince? And so every day I pray God for grace to be able to fulfill the vow that was made on my behalf by my Godfather. It's a great quote. So she's already confessed the faith in baptism as a little baby. I believe. And what has she done? She's done this publicly and, in fact, in the church. Now, there's a longer, I didn't quote the longer section, but she actually makes reference to her confirmation. So not only she's done the baptism, but she's done a confirmation already. So her confessing the faith to the, to the theologians of Ingolstadt 
is just what she's already she's already been doing this. This isn't this isn't, this isn't like any sort of power struggle, because that's what they're going to say. She's trying to undermine the office of pastors and bishops. She's trying to do what God's given us to do. No, she's not. She's actually saying, hey, I've already done this. In fact, you've already done it too, but you're not doing it. And you should. So, I mean, this is a great, this is a great um, example of how she was able to, con- to connect her confession of faith and confessing to, to martyrdom, because there's been death threats given to her. By the way, I don't think I've said this. So some of the things that were told her husband, like uh, she should have her fingers chopped off. Did I tell you this? Because so she can write. Stop her writing. Chop her fingers off. Can you believe this? It's crazy. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, And then just some other terrible things. Uh, There's no actual evidence whether her husband actually physically assaulted her, but she did make reference to Adam... um, Von Thierin, uh, uh, he's persecuting the Christ in me. So we don't know what that means. It's kind of just this reference to her husband basically not, not loving her. Um, okay, so, but this connection between confessing the faith and baptism is already made in 1 Peter chapter 3. I read that in the chapel, but I will read it again. So she actually is... Again, incorporating something that's already there we go, in her life and then just expounding upon it. It's, it's genius. I think it's genius. I think it's great. Because they all would have said, because all part of the theology of the baptism, okay, let me, before I read that. So, we all seen a baptism service here at St. John. And since Nash is in here, we'll talk about Nash. When Nash was baptized, even though you didn't hear him speak, he confessed the faith. Um, you know, godparents, the whole church, I mean, it's really the whole church, the whole church confesses with him. So faith is given to Nash in holy baptism, and our faith is a confessing faith. It's not a quiet faith. So it says something. Um, when I teach uh, First Communion, I, I use the, the Bible story from Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 11. That's why I love it, 7, 11. Slushies, slurpees. Okay. It's the uh, widow's son in Nain. So Jesus is walking into the town of Nain, with a big crowd, and, and then so there's a procession of life, and then there's a procession of death coming out of the town. They're going to go bury the, the widow's son, he who just died. Jesus tells him to wake up, or get up, or resurrect, and he immediately starts talking. But we don't know what he's saying, but he immediately starts talking. So it's it's a good example of, of once everyone who's been baptized rises in the faith, they, it's a confessing faith. They talk. They're talking. So, um, what, what do you say? Well, you basically say, I believe in God and I renounce the devil. I mean, that's our entire life can be summed up in the baptismal service. That's what we do all the time. 
So she is simply taking what has happened and does happen routinely in, in, in church, making disciples, making, you know, by baptizing and teaching, and then she plays it out. So this isn't a once-in-a-lifetime event in the background, but it's an everyday event. And that is a Lutheran understanding, because we make a small catechism. We wake up in the morning, we make the sign of the cross as a remembrance of our baptism, right? Okay. So she's basically just doing what she should do every day. But this connection between confessing the faith and baptism is already in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 13 and going through 22. So it's, it's kind of long, but you get it. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ Jesus may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, so there's this connection between a good conscience in confession and a good conscience in baptism. Um, verse, verse 16, have a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile you. And then um, in verse 21, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So she enters into this, this uh, discussion, open dis- disputa- disputation with the theologians of Ingolstadt based on baptism. She just is simply understanding that our baptism gives us a good conscience to speak the faith in all circumstances. And not only just speak the words, but live life in a way that confesses the faith too. Um, so I think, I, think that's, I think that's brilliant. Because many people will want to make her argument about something else, whether it be in the past or even in the future, even in today's times. But she's really just advocating for baptismal faith. She's not advocating to be a, a just anything besides that. That's it. All right. Any questions right now? Yeah, Barb. Did you ever go to um, others that were in a similar situation with yourself to kind of get support? Yeah, that's great. That's a great question. Yes, yes, kind of, sort of, yeah. So in her letter to the Duke Wilhelm, she says that, you know, if I get arrested or I'm put in jail or I'm, I'm shut up, there's a thousand women who will rise up and say the same thing. So she must have some community, yeah. But, um, well, and then there's also, she also was part of, because of her 
position in life. Part of like these stu like st study groups thing. I can't remember what they, they don't really have a. I, don't, I should remember that. But that that was the same thing with Katharina Regina von Greifenberg. She also had. But again, it was it wasn't like a public setting. It was basically noble people getting together to discuss. You know, s smart things because they had the leisure to do it. You know, because they had people doing things for them, yeah. There were more signatures on the Oh, yeah, okay, so now you raise a really good question, Barb. This is a separate question. What, what was the response to the wider public after, after this became public? Well, um, not much. There wasn't much wider support. Now, a lot of people will argue it's because of where she was at. She was in Bavaria. Bavaria, like I pointed out last week, was a very strong Roman Catholic place. And frankly, people were very afraid of losing their positions. She was not. Now, she had a lot of support kind of in a wider circles. So even, even Martin Luther wrote to her to tell her, you know, keep going. Um, and she had support in Nuremberg from a Reformation pastor, Osiander. And so she did, but she didn't have any kind of local support. Nobody, nobody locally stood up and said, yeah, we're with you. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of real lonely. I mean, that's kind of the reason why it's really impressed that she stuck with it. Um, yeah. It's also the bummer. It's also a bummer that people didn't quite get it. Because again, her argument based on her baptism is so fundamental to the Christian faith. So, all right. So, okay, now here's the thing. Much of her argument is asserted rather than argued. You know, she just kind of offhandedly dis disregards philosophy, law, the papacy. She doesn't really argue that. So again, that unfortunately probably discredits her rather than leads, leads to her credibility with the theologians because she sort of sounds like just an angry lady. But if you're willing to spend a little time with the letter, then you see these very interesting things about her one question about authority. Where does it come from? It comes from God's word. What she is doing is based on God's word given to her in baptism. But nobody does that. And then the other thing, too, is none of the articles for the Seehofer's trial are actually debated or argued for. I don't know if you guys ever that. So there is the, the list of things that he was arrested for. She actually doesn't say, hey, the second thing he had to argue for or he was accused of, well, that, that's just... There's no heresy in it. Now, if you guys actually looked at the uh, articles, but like the last one, the last, there's, there's some strange ones, and I don't know if that's actually truthful or if, if the people who arrested him wanted to, uh, you know, discredit him. So, so this, like, for instance, the um, 17th article. The gospel of Christ is not spiritual but literal. Contrary to St. Paul's teaching. What? I don't know. I, well, first of all, I don't even know what it means. I don't, this is really weird. 
Um, no, if you keep reading, though, it makes sense. I remember that. Well, that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This means that the letter is the law of Moses and the Spirit of the law of the Gospel. It's so confusing because it could be taken so many different ways. Yeah. Um, the 15th article, that it's quite unseemly to take an oath for the sake of temporal goods. Not sure what that means. I mean, you can maybe try to figure it out, but it's not really clear. Um, if you look at that 134 footnote. Yeah. I don't speak that kind of German, though. <laughs> no, no. But anyways, the whole point, though, is, is that... Um, but, but the first, I mean, like, if you take a look at the first article, that faith alone is sufficient for our justification. Okay, that's, like, right out of Lutheranism 101. Um, yeah. I mean, so these are all things that she could easily have argued for and saying this is just from Scripture, using her argument, but she doesn't. And, and it's unfortunate because of, it actually relates to what Barb asked, is that there could have been more moderate-minded theologians on the faculty or even just kind of locally-minded pastors who've been like, hey, actually, she brings up some good points. But unfortunately, she doesn't actually deal with the Seehofer trial specifically. And so if, if you're not giving her the benefit of the doubt, it can be misconstrued as she just wants to do what Luther is doing even though she says, I'm not a follower of Luther, I'm a follower of Christ. So, it's kind of a bummer. I, I mean, insofar as, it, it's, it, well, it's a bummer because of what happens after the letter. Basically, nothing happens after the letter. And it would be really cool to have seen <laughs> some sort of movement, but there wasn't. Um, all right, anything else? You know, Marilyn said it was very easy to read, but did anybody else find anything else as far as, like, was it you're a little confused by things? The letter itself makes reference to decretals. Um, I don't know if the footnotes helped you on those. It's just canon law. It's just... Canon law is what the magisterium has decided is true, and it needs to be done that way. Um, so just, you know, as you read it, though, remember it's just a letter, it's not a treatise. That's maybe the, the last bit on my handout is maybe for me more than you, but, um, she's very passionate in her writing. She used rhetorical devices. Um, I, I do love her use of irony and sarcasm. I think it was hilarious. Uh, Yeah. I don't think I did. I. She makes reference to Luther's translation of the Bible. I think she kind of tangentially makes reference to it, but she makes an explicit reference later, again, of how <laughs> Seehofer had to deny all of Luther's writings, including the New Testament. And the, the, he, she also knew about the Pentateuch that was about to be published, too, which is kind of an unusual, interesting note. But. Um, I, I think that's so smart. I mean, like, yeah, it's great. So maybe she is like Lizzo. I think some of Lizzo's lyrics are kind of funny. All right, never mind. I don't think I'm going to win that argument. She's not a modern-day Lizzo. Yeah, okay. Um, all right, so I just talked about how she's very tactful 
She downplays the Seahawk affair as basically being youthful exuberance. He, the boy needs direction, not execution. Um, also minimizes mim mim the role of the Bavarian princes because if they really knew what was being done, they would have done something different. That's also when she influences, uh, she makes reference to the fact, hey, don't forget, I'm part of the von Stauff family. Um, oh, yeah. No, well, and I think, yeah, so she actually has no idea whether they were involved in this or not. That's pretty clear from the letter to Duke Wilhelm and then even to, uh, she makes a, a letter to Frederick the Wise and then also to her uncle, who's part of the nobility. So she's really, yeah, like you said, that's, I mean, she's going to have to say something. What are you going to say? Yeah, you're going to say, hey, you princes, you are you know, murderous and evil, and or, hey, did you know this was happening? Because I know you're godly Christians. You made the same vows as I did in baptism, and if you made that vow, you wouldn't be doing this either. Yeah. So, oh, and then the other thing, too, she really really encourages a public dispute, you know, dispute, like, hey, we should have a public debate about this. And it's really because she's honest. She's really... You know, if Seehofer is a heretic, if I'm a heretic, then I, I would love to be shown why in God's word. Not just because you say so. Because you don't carry the authority, God's word does. So. All right. Um, like I said, the next reading is a poem. It I mean, obviously doesn't read as a poem in the English. It's not for the faint of heart. I don't think so. I really just can't believe something like this was allowed to happen. But her response, I think, is great. It gets a little long, a little long-winded. Well, at least for me, maybe not for you. I don't know. Maybe you'll eat it up. But okay, so next week we will discuss this, and then we're going to go over what I said we were going to do this week, but I realized we just ran out of time. So... Um, I knew we were going to run out of time, is the, um, okay, so one of the accusations against Argula is that she is trying to destroy the office of the holy ministry, that, that there are no, the, the pastors have no kind of unique gifts, and that basically everyone is, what, what they said, everyone's a priest. Well, that is actually not what she's arguing for, but we do have to kind of explore what the uh, pre what Luther calls the priesthood of the baptized. And we'll take a look at Exodus 19, 1 Peter chapter 2, and then how Argula actually is, again, a great synthesizer of theology and uh, the Bible. So we're going to do that for sure next week. Because that's real helpful for all of us too because um, well, it's part of the doctrine of vocation. So we all have a calling in life. So we want to rejoice in those gifts. Uh, okay, yeah, then the nuns after that. We'll, 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 
we're going to read some nuns. Which I'm super excited about, by the way. I mean, uh, the one in particular, the um, Sophia of Quindlinburg. It's actually a prayer, like she should be reading from a um, devotional book. Which I wish all of it was translated into English. Because it's really nice. Okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.